Bring a friend, bring a friend. We're back. What's up, everyone? Hey, Anne. Hey, Ariel. How are you? I'm doing well. Actually, I'm coming down with a little bit of a cold, but other than that, oh, I'm doing well. How are I'm you? I'm so sorry. I'm great. I'm great. I'm super excited about today's conversation. In fact, when I tell people about our guest today, that Michael Pollan is joining us, I've never had more people kind of freak out and geek out um, right? on all sorts of levels. Yeah. And I, I swear we could have a five hour podcast with all the questions that everybody wants to ask. And I don't even know. I'm I know where to start, but I, you're stressed. <laughs> I'm stressed said? because I know we're not going to have enough time because we he never would not have time. want you to be stressed. I know. That's the thing. Now I'm stressed about being stressed. And well, <laughs> I, I would tell you to go take some psychedelics, but that would be a very interesting someone messenger some lsd over here please <laughs> just kidding i've never yeah. even smoked weed that's another thing i'm stressed to tell him i know it's your virginal <laughs> status it makes it very it very interesting i know it does i wonder how i'm gonna feel after this i know well i don't even know how to introduce this guest so i think we should just let him introduce himself we're gonna live this one out loud I'm a writer and a teacher. Those are my main things. I've been writing books now for 30 years or so, having to do with the places where humans and nature engage with one another. Um, I've been fascinated by plants and our relationship to them since I became a gardener as an eight-year-old, and then more seriously as a 29-year-old. Um, and I've been exploring all the dimensions of that relationship, uh, from food and agriculture to beauty, to design, to uh, plant medicines. So, so take us back to that eight-year-old in the garden. What was that magical moment where you found some sort of bliss? What happened? It was the moment, the first time I ripened a strawberry, um, was mind-blowing. The idea that I could plant something, and I had bought some, or my mother had bought me some plants at the garden center, and that something I recognized as delicious, beautiful, and valuable had come out of the earth, uh, that I had made this thing with the help of nature, um, and that its value was such that my mother, you know, I could sell it to my mother. I actually did. I mean, there was a capitalist instinct here too. <laughs> so you didn't describe yourself as an entrepreneur, but we'll throw that in. <laughs> it counts, it counts. But it's this idea that, you know, value is, you know, you know the expression, money grows on trees. Well, this was just as good. Literally. Yeah. And then I, yeah. yes. and then I grew some other things. I grew some peppers and green beans. And I was so taken with the fact that these things that people valued could be produced uh, in nature. And um, I grew, I remember growing a hot pepper and I, I grew peppers. I didn't know what kind I bought. I just picked the prettiest ones. And I also remember taking a bite of one and having a profound experience that was totally not pleasant. Um, mm. Because it was, it was so, so hot. hot. I, just, I just chomped into it and I just screamed. Oh. Um, <laughs> And there is a certain kind of consciousness change that goes on with uh, hot, hot food. And I definitely had that, uh, that, you know, flushed feeling, the adrenaline. And did all of your, your kid childhood friends know you as the, as the gardener? Like, what were you, what were you like? Then? <laughs> um, actually, some of them did. I had one friend who lived across the street. His name was Charlie DeSalvo. 
And um, I would get him to work for me, essentially, in the garden. And um, I've been good at delegating a lot of my life. And um, and Charlie would come over and I would set him to weeding and things like that and tell him he was a partner in the farm and he would take some produce home. And uh, so, yeah, I had friends who knew about it and they thought it was kind of cool. That's awesome. And then you, you sort of, in your intro, fast forwarded to another revelation when you were 29. What was that one? Uh, it wasn't so much a revelation, but I started, um, we bought this house where I am right now in, in uh, northwestern Connecticut. And uh, I was working at a magazine in New York. I was an editor at Harper's Magazine in New York for 10 years. But I really had this strong urge to get out of the city. And uh, so we bought this weekend house. It was a kind of broken down dairy farm with five acres. And I, and I kind of had a renaissance of my interest in gardening. And uh, I started um, planting vegetables again, but also flowers. And um, I started having adventures in the garden um, that, and not all of them happy, that uh, led to my first serious writing. Um, it began with a woodchuck um, that, you know, was decimating my first crops. I would plant them one day, he would come in and wipe them out. I'd replant, he'd, he'd come in again. And I got into this escalating series of measures that I'm, I'm not proud of, um, that I described, uh, I described as my, my, my horticultural Vietnam. Um, and, um, this is like Bill Murray and Caddyshack. Yeah. It was a lot like that. And when, when, oh when that movie came out, I, I, I definitely recognized you myself. You related. And, yeah. but I, you know, the kind of fury that a human can generate, um, which is really routed rooted in our sense of entitlement and arrogance that, you know, that this stupid creature was actually thwarting my will. So I did things like uh, pour a can of creosote down his burrow. Uh, when I found the burrow, um, found a dead woodchuck on the, on the road and scooped it onto a piece of cardboard and stuffed it into his burrow to, ter <laughs> to terrorize this him. This is what will happen to you. It oh was, my and, gosh. And then I, I finally did something really stupid, but it, but it had the virtue of shocking me out of my insanity. Um, I poured a gallon of gasoline down his burrow and um, threw a match in, thinking that wow. the, uh, the fire would go down through all the, the rooms and tunnels and, and asphyxiate him or burn him out. And, um, but having not been a physics major, I was an English major, I, I forgot that uh, fire does... It goes toward oxygen. It doesn't go away from it. And uh, mm -hmm. so this fountain of flame it came out of it. Yeah, it came right at me and, and just, you know, almost singed me. Um, I, I just created this firestorm in my garden. It was, and then that kind of shocked me into a realization that this is not the way to, um, to deal with a challenge like a woodchuck. And uh, and that became my first serious essay uh, about nature and, and our relationship to it, our entitlement. Um, it was called Nature Abhors a Garden, and it was published in uh, Harper's Magazine. And that led to a series of essays using my garden as a laboratory in which to think through uh, the, the, the ethical and moral challenges of our relationship to the natural world. Um, and that became my first book, Second Nature. Uh, so I have that woodchuck to thank. Wow. And and does that, you don't know if that woodchuck is still around, <laughs> but, but you, you did not, you did not. I didn't shoot it. And I didn't, life. no. What no. I did do, and this will sound no. stupid that I hadn't thought of it 
earlier is build a really good fence. Um, I didn't have a fence. Mm. And, and the reason I didn't have... Boundaries. Boundaries, very important. But you see, to <laughs> Americans, fences are... Um, are I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're someone like me who's reading Emerson and Thoreau and John Muir and worshiping the wilderness, a fence is very kind of English and old world and, and, and bespeaks an alienation from the natural world. And I was trying mm. to be continuous mm. with the natural world, but you can't always. Mm. And, uh, and that was a lesson, too, that I learned. Um, that a, a garden and, and a wilderness are very different places and they have a different set of rules. So, so that's, yeah, that's a lot of um, significant thinking. I don't know if you can possibly describe this since it's the only brain you've ever lived in, but what does it feel like <laughs> to live inside your brain? And how do yes. you reconcile all of these thoughts? Like what, are you thinking nonstop? What, and how do you, how do you make sense of it all? That's a very interesting and difficult question. I mean, I have had other forms of consciousness, <laughs> so I, I do have. <laughs> yeah, you have. But but before that, what does it feel before before all that? Because we'll, well get to that. I mean, whatever you think feel? feels normal. I mean, it feels pretty normal to me to think about this stuff. I are you thinking all the time? No, um, I often don't think until I sit down to write. Uh, for me, writing mm. is a technology for thinking. Um, the kinds of thoughts I have just kind of walking around or think, trying to think are not my best thoughts. Um, my best mm. thoughts come when I have a question and I sit down and try to answer it on paper. Um, so what was going on with me and that woodchuck and what it meant and how it connected to American history of nature writing and all that kind of stuff. A lot of that is like, okay, I'm going to write about this. And I start making notes and writing and then I begin getting ideas. But but you'll have a thought at any moment and you'll sort of, do you make a mental note? Do you have a, do you have a Yeah, I, I usually carry a little carry? pad with me. Um, and like a lot of journalists, I think, and writers, I, th I think in terms of questions. Uh, and, um, and questions are always more interesting than answers uh, or usually more And do they tend to be questions that someone else poses to you or they're things that you all of a sudden wonder about? Both. Both. I mean, sometimes editors put a question to you and that can be very useful. Um, you know, that there's yeah. something they'd like you to explore and, and uh, go out and get the answers to. And a lot of good pieces have come out of that. But often I come up with them. Uh, I'm interested in the subject and there's some question about it that really engages me. And uh, and I start just kind of, you know, chewing on it and I can chew on it a long time before I get an answer. And I don't always get an answer. And then I, but, but, yeah. you know, I read, I mean, there's smarter people than me who have written books on most topics. And, and so I like to have a question motivating my reading that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, whenever I, whenever I, I, I've determined I'm going to write an essay about X or Y, or I get an assignment to do an article about, the first thing I do is make a reading list. These are the books I get to read. And, and, and I like reading in that very purposeful way, you know, extractive. Um, I just, I don't know. I just read with more care and, and uh, intention. And um, and the reading then tends to build onto more exploration. From what I've read of your works, yeah. it sounds like you start reading something and that takes you on not necessarily wild goose chases, but certainly Down rabbit holes, iterative. definitely. Yeah. yeah, and I like that. Yeah, or hedgehog <laughs> holes, gopher holes. Exactly. What was that? Look, yeah, I learned everything <laughs> about woodchucks and their personal hygiene and how they organize their burrows. And I, I mean, I, I love mm -hmm. having a reason to learn. And that kind of directed learning is uh, one of the things I like about journalism. I mean, as journalists, we get paid as adults to master whole new subjects. That's incredible. 
I mean, how often, you know, how many professions allow you to do that? In most professions, it's incremental. You know, doctors and lawyers, they learn some new stuff um, for each project. But I start from scratch. When I started writing about neuroscience and mental health, I I didn't know anything. Um, And here, it just is the most wonderful gig in the world that somebody's going to pay you to learn learn something. become the master of your own destiny of okay I'm tired of this topic and now I'm curious about this next thing how do you how do you know when you've sort of you're done you personally are done or your exploration is done that's a good question there are a couple ways um I like I like writing as an amateur I like being near closer to the beginning of the learning curve when I sit down to write Um, And if you read my books and articles, most of them, I'm kind of an idiot on page one. I mean, I have questions, I'm curious, (laughs) but I really, I don't have it figured out. Um, I I just, I'm at the beginning of a journey of education. And I love taking the reader with me on that process, as opposed to mastering the subject and then starting a lecture on page one, the way you would in an academic book or a dissertation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is just death. People don't want to be lectured to. It's not fun for anybody involved. And it just becomes a rehearsal of what you know rather than a discovery of, of, of what, you, what you know. So, so there's a point where also you become an expert on a field and that, that it would be disingenuous to pretend you didn't know a lot or you hadn't formed conclusions. So suddenly you're an advocate. Suddenly you're not on the news pages of the New York Times. You're on the op-ed page of the New York Times. And that's, that's a different mm-hmm. identity. And, and that's, a, that's a real signal it's time to move on. The other signal is um, there are too many people in the space. I don't like writing about cr- in crowded rooms. Um, one of the things I loved about psychedelics is when I was writing How to Change Your Mind, I didn't have, I was like, where is everybody? You know, I mean, normally when we, when we write, we have this competitive, like, I got to get this out before so-and-so does his, there's this book coming and that yeah. book coming. And, the journalistic scoop. Yeah, the scoop. And that scoop mentality is, uh, I, I really prefer to be in a lonely area that, you know, people like squint when you tell them what you're working on. They don't really <laughs> get it. But you're also a real risk taker. Were you always? You're just going to put yourself out there and, you know, be judged or not be judged and just be you. <laughs> well, I think anyone who writes is taking risks to some extent. You're, you know. Yeah, but I think you're, I mean, I think wanting to be the first and certainly venturing into, you know, whether it was the world of plants or then. Yeah, the I mean, psychedelics. Specifically psychedelics. That's out there. Psychedelics was kind of out there and there was some reputational risk, I suppose. Um, did you Did you worry about that? A little bit, but I had done an article first for the New Yorker called The Trip Treatment that became the germ of the book. And the response to that article was so positive and encouraging that I, that took away a lot of the worry. It also opened a lot of doors um, that, you know, in the field. Um, so I, I kind of rehearsed my entrance into that subject in a way that made it less scary than it might have been. But, but I certainly worried that I had, I mean, over many years, I'd built an audience that cared passionately about food and agriculture mm-hmm. and nature. And here I was going to be writing about neuroscience and mental health. And, and I didn't know that they would come with me. I mean, that's, that's a real challenge of nonfiction book writing in that people are reading you for the topic, not just for you. And, and you don't know how much is the topic and you don't know how much is you. 
And, and I've seen really good nonfiction writers change topics too abruptly and lose their audience completely. Um, mm. So there was that, so there was kind of a commercial concern that way, but I, you know, I was ready. Do you have a sounding board of people where you say, Hey, I'm thinking of going in this direction. Am I making a big mistake? Well, I'm very fortunate in that I have been with the same editor and the same agent for my entire career. I've done nine books with both of them together. Wow. Uh, and you know, there've been times where I proposed ideas and they've said, Meh, it doesn't sound good. Um, and what's, what's the one you're most disappointed that they didn't pick up on well the story there is i ended up doing it in spite of <laughs> so when i yes you did on my third book botany desire i wanted to write something about the relationship of plants and people and how they affect one another and i was going to profile a bunch of plants and and or relationships and my editor who you know we'd done two books together she said i don't really see this one and she made a very low offer um, and, uh, it wasn't enough for me to live on, to write it. I was full-time writer at that time. Mm. And, uh, I said, and there was some other idea in play that I had put out there that I was not as excited about. And it would also take, it would have meant moving with my family to Florida for a year. It was like, there's a lot wrong with this idea. Mm. And, um, uh, and I told Anne, my editor, I said, look, this is, this is the book I want to write. So we may have to look elsewhere. And, or my agent conveyed that to her. And she came back and she said, look, I'm in it for your whole career, not just a given book. So if this is the book you want to write, tell me how much you need to live for two years, which is how long it would take me to write. And I'll give you that much. And she did. And so she took, wow. she took a leap of faith. Um, and, uh, you know, it worked out. Um, it worked out for her. Yeah. And, um, you could say, well, she made the mistake. That was my first bestseller. And she, you know, she didn't recognize what a good idea it was, but it wasn't a good idea at the beginning. It was pretty flat. <laughs> and it was, only, it was only, again, thinking through writing that I figured out that this was really about this symbiotic relationship that I was gonna talk about how plants manipulate us to do things for them. And none of that was clear, the plant's eye view of the world, which became this, this subtitle, until it was done. Um, so there's a leap of faith in, in all creative work and she stood by me and, uh, you know, in, in, in an act of loyalty that I've since, or actually I've had the opportunity to reciprocate too, because there've been times where she lost a job and, and rather than stay with that publisher, I, I went with her. So that relationship it's is all about the relationship. so important. Yeah. And I'm mm -hmm. so lucky because most writers end up getting tossed around, you know, from editor to editor. And I, I have not had to do that. Well, I love that mutuality. When you teach, do you teach your students by getting them to ask the right questions in the same way that you start by asking questions? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm teaching right now a, uh, a science writing workshop at, uh, at Harvard to undergraduates, and they're writing long pieces, and they're working on their pitches now, their query letters. And I said, there has to be questions there. There have to be really compelling questions that you are going to set out to answer. So you have to frame those questions. And it's really hard to do. I mean, to make, it, to make a question that's compelling to a lot of people. Um, but having a question also gives you a, a principle of suspense, right? Because um, you start this thing and you wonder, is this guy going to be able to deliver? And, and you know, it's like it becomes a detective story. How are we going to find the answer to this question?
I don't know if you can answer this question, but what does your best day feel like? Oh, a best day is a day I get some writing done. Um, and believe it or not, those are rare for a writer because I spend half my time doing this instead. And, uh, but yeah. also reporting, which takes a lot of time, teaching, which takes a lot of time, um, book promotion, touring, public speaking. It's amazing how many non-writing things I do in a week. And, uh, mm. but do you set aside certain time I'm going to write for two hours a day or I'm going to, you know, are you disciplined in that I'm way? I'm very disciplined, but there are phases where I just have to give it up, give up on it. Like during a semester I'm teaching, I don't get a lot of writing done at all. Uh, I think about things I read, I do reporting. Um, but you know, as a journalist, there's lo writing involves lots of things that don't involve writing. Uh, for example, reporting, there's a huge amount of time spent reporting. And when you're saying reporting, you mean, you mean research, I mean, well, you mean digging, digging through the details. What do you mean? Uh, reporting has two aspects. One is things you can do reading, um, and looking at documents and searching online. And the other half is talking to people and going places and seeing things. Uh, so that's, you know, so reporting and research are, are connected. One is kind of more active than the other. Um, and that's, you know, obviously essential to what I do. I love the moment when all that is done and, I, and I'm sitting down to draft and I'm uh, working on the piece itself. And then I'll be very disciplined. I don't do anything else. That's my mornings. I put off, uh, you know, email conversations, interviews till the afternoon because I, I only work half a day. I mean, it's if you can yeah. if you can get in like four hours. That's plenty. You'll get enough done. Do you get into a zone and time flies and you don't even some know? Days, or are you conscious? Some days. Some days it's like yeah. breaking rocks and you're never in the zone. <laughs> so the thing people don't understand about writing is most of the time you're reading. You write a sentence and then you stop and you stare at it and you read it over. What's wrong with this sentence? Why don't I like it? Why isn't it clearer? Why is it so flat? Why is it in the passive voice? And you have a sip of coffee and you think about it. But that's, you know, and then you write again. Are, are you that granular that you literally will write one sentence and think about it before you write the next one? I mean, I sort of need to vomit a thought. <laughs> yeah, some people do. <laughs> I, I write very clean first drafts. I don't go on. I don't go to the next paragraph till I'm satisfied with the one before. Pretty much. Um, oh, so I know wow. people spit out these drafts and then they work on them and they do a lot of editing. I tend to write a pretty clean first draft. Um, I edit every day. I go back to the beginning of whatever I'm writing. I start the day by going back to the beginning, reading it and editing it, putting those changes on, and then I go forward. I kind of reload the piece that way. Okay, well, this, is, this leads me to a perfect transition point. How does someone who is that controlled and disciplined let it all go with psychedelics? <laughs> Because that's exactly the person who needs psychedelics. <laughs> it's an antidote. But how do you get how, how do you get over that that uh, I need to be in control yeah. hump? It was challenging for me, um, and I was very nervous about doing psychedelics when I decided I, I needed mm -hmm. to for this book, and because I was curious, and um, and I was terrified each time, and I had a sleepless night before every one of my journeys. What surprised me, though, is when I finally found the person to do it with, and I found guides, underground guides, and I actually just got myself to the point where I could 
ingest the the medicine, I, I was able to completely let go. I just, I surprised myself. I was just completely in their hands. I put myself in their hands and I went and I didn't fight what was happening in my mind. And um, that surprised me. I thought I would. It was that, was that premeditated and conscious? Well, I had, I had I'm just going to jump and let go. Yeah. Because part of the instructions you get from your guides, and this is kind of well known in the field has been since John Lennon advised people to relax their mind and float downstream is that you, you yeah. surrender is, is the, is an essential part of the process. And that is in part what is so right. therapeutic about it to, to, for a time when you feel safe enough in the proper container, release control. You know, one of the things that I've heard, and I have not been on a psychedelic trip myself, so I'm asking maybe naive questions, but having read a lot about people's experiences and knowing people who have had their own experiences, it sounds like there is power of suggestion by the guides that will allow you to go in certain directions. How do you know, how do you find a guide you trust? How do you, how do you know and talk with them about what you're sort of hoping to get out of this experience? And then how do they use the power of suggestion to help you get there? They do use the power of suggestion, I think. There's a lot of um, subtle uh, priming that happens. Um, and uh, it's amazing how, in, how much the, the experience is influenced by what Timothy Leary called set and setting, uh, the, the physical setting that you're in and the mindset that you bring to it. Um, I had one experience where I had this idea, I was working on the book and I brought a computer into the treatment room and my guide was like, you know, you don't really want a computer around. I said, no, I've got to run this little test. I want to look at something when I'm really, you know, at the peak of the experience and maybe make some notes. And my experience for like hours was dominated by, uh, what looked like a computer animated world. And that the the digital idiom had completely infected my mind, and and I didn't like it. I felt like I was in a video game, and it was really claustrophobic and unpleasant, and there was no color, and it was just awful. Um, so, but they, you know, they prepare you very carefully. They help you set an intention. And I think that's very important. Uh, not that it's always realized, but that you go into it hoping to learn about this or address this problem or think about this relationship. And I think that's important too, to make it productive and not simply, you know, grooving on the interesting sensory things happening. Um, and then afterwards they, you know, you have what's called an integration session where they, uh, you sit with them, you tell the, the narrative of what happened and, and the very act of telling the narrative begins to shape the experience, which otherwise could be very confusing. Does it cement it in your memory? Yes, it absolutely does. Telling the story cements it in your memory and it becomes quite durable, much more durable than a dream. What, why do you think we as humans have sort of stopped evolving to be able to do this for ourselves? Why do we need to ingest something or take ourselves to another place? This feels, in the way that you describe it, like something that would the experience in terms of self-awareness and resolution of issues and, you know, on a lot of levels might be more helpful. Why can't, why, why haven't we evolved to do this ourselves? Were we not meant to? No, I don't think that's it at all. I, I, I think that we have had technologies for self-transcendence of many kinds for a very long time. And, um, you know, fasting is one people go on vision quests 
And, um, and religion is another way we do it. Chanting is another way we do it. Music, ecstatic dance. So humans have been fussing with their consciousness and, and changing their everyday normal consciousness forever. And they hit on plants as a way to do it a very long time ago. Um, research suggests that peyote was being used in religious ceremonies 6,000 years ago in, in uh, Texas yeah. and Mexico. Um, so this is an age old desire. It's a very interesting one because it isn't immediately clear why it's, why it is adaptive. Um, and in some ways it seems maladaptive in that you're doing something that is making you less able to defend yourself, more prone to accident, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. Yeah, very but if the, mm -hmm. but if the drug takers were, if it was really so maladaptive, the drug takers would have been weeded out by natural selection by now, and they haven't been. So that suggests that there is a value uh, in doing this. Um, and it's, uh, I think it contributes a lot to cultural evolution. I think that there is uh, a kind of creativity that comes out of this, um, that psychedelic experiences and other drug experiences. If you look at the history of the arts, um, there are people who thought up cool new things, scientists who came up with breakthroughs on drugs, um, who can tell you about it. Um, it's just one of those disruptive forces that shakes us out of uh, preconceived ways of approaching problems. It allows us to think more of the way children think, which is truly out of the box with, you know, proposing wild solutions that seldom work, but every now and then work better than something an adult could come up with. So I think it's availed our species in lots of ways that are very hard to measure because some of them go back, you know, to prehistory. And, and back to your conversation about ego, I mean, that's a little bit of an ego-driven result is you're able to on an individual level think creatively do things that you know sort of catapult you to a new level of thinking i'm really curious but, there, about, but there's also you know, we're, we're in besides that that is an individualist uh benefit it's true but there are other benefits these things are pro-social too in that if you think about uh, religious observance it's 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 about the group uh, and, and even psychedelics, even though it's an individual experience, it makes people feel very connected uh, and less egocentric. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because when you think of how divided we are now, I mean, I've only been alive 59 uh -huh. years, but it feels to me like we are less connected on a lot of levels, more further apart on than, you know, whether it's socially, economically than than we've been. But when I talk to people who have done psychedelics and they come out of it, they talk about this feeling of connectedness to the greater world. They sort of have their perspective of only being a small piece of the larger world and how being connected to this greater source is so important to their overall sense of self. I mean, should there be broader use of psychedelics to try to close some of the gaps that we all feel in our own little bubbles? I don't think we know enough yet to say that it would work that way for everybody. Um, there are many people who come out of a psychedelic experience feeling more connected, less egocentric, more um, part of nature rather than, you know, standing outside of nature. And, and indeed, there's been some preliminary studies that have measured this and, and that, that there are 
psychologists have measures of what's called nature connectedness. And a single psilocybin experience increases people's sense that they're part of nature, not standing outside nature, as many of us feel. Um, but so far, so this does suggest that this is a medicine that could benefit us at the cultural level with a change of consciousness. Um, we are way too um, separate from one another in nature. We're definitely uh, overly individualistic. And this would seem to be a countervailing force. But we have to do more research before we can really safely conclude that. Most of the people who take psychedelics are already inclined in that direction. Um, that's one of the reasons they're taking it. There's a selection bias. Yeah. Until we see the Koch brothers becoming environmentalists after they take psychedelics, or Trump having a <laughs> you know a complete change of view, and it's and yeah. frankly it's research that's it's research we need to do, and it's one of the things that um, we're going to yeah. be doing at Berkeley. I'm I'm a co-founder of the Psychedelic Research Center, and we want to look at belief change after psychedelics and see um, and. But we, we want to do it with a really representative sample of people, not just people who like psychedelics. Are you able to spend a lot of time with people who don't buy into this sort of view of the world? When you say this view of the world... Or do you, are you surrounded... Well, are you... Uh, that psychedelics have the potential to not only cause individual uh, growth and fulfillment, but communal, oh, yeah, collective. Yeah. Do you get... A, do you, are you fine being in a room with people who are like, you're you're crazy. Pour me another gin and tonic. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, yeah. <laughs> Pop I, another pill. I, I, I have tons of friends who are not... Have nothing to do with this world and think it's kind of nutty and wouldn't go near it. I, most of my friends are not interested... I mean, as time has gone on, I have to say that the culture, at least as I see it, since 2018 has shifted dramatically and the people's openness mm -hmm. to more people ask me about it than, you know, and, and now want to know how can I do this? Where do I go? I mean, I'm and, and, and all sort of the most unlikely people come to tell me about their experiences. So as time goes wow. on, there are fewer and fewer people who who don't take it seriously. I mean, we, yeah. there is really a shift underway. Um, and probably, though, a shortage of really quali qualified people to take you on a journey, is my guess. So you have sort of yes. an over, over demand. Problem. And I'm sure there are a lot of incompetent people putting up shingles right mm -hmm. now. And, uh, and I think that's a real yeah. concern. I think that the, the demand is going to outstrip the supply for good guides. And, um, uh, and people are going to have bad experiences as a result. Yeah. And I really worry about that. I, I, you know, I, we're in a, the midst of a kind of a gold rush, um, both at the corporate level with psychedelics as an industry, but also with uh, guiding and people looking for underground experiences. And um, uh, I think that people have to be super careful. And you, you said earlier, how do you find a guide? Um, I mean, the key is, you know, you can find a guide by asking around, but it, the key is interviewing them. And, and making sure that there's someone you trust because you're trusting them in a profound way. Um, and I interviewed several people and, um, you know, there were people, I, I described a couple people I met in the book that I just would not entrust my brain to. Um, yeah. And, but I think in the same way, if you're interviewing psychotherapists, you ha you kind of have a sense of that you yeah, have but you do have to eventually take a take a jump in and take all that time to shed your tr sh share your truth and ground it. And this this feels like a big a big leap. But you know, people have different vocabularies too. You know, they could be more or less spiritual or more or less scientific. Or um, 
uh, some people are very indigenous in their in their their thinking about this, and um, I, I think we have a lot of intuitive capacity to find the right person. Wow, Michael, Mr. Professor. Wow, wow, wow. What did you think of that, Anne? I'm blown away. I'm blown away. I mean, I'm one of those people who is so controlled that like my body wouldn't go into labor two weeks past my due date. I mean, I'm just so physically wound up that I don't, you know, he, he, he provoked me so that I'm curious. Do I know whether I could go there? I don't know. I don't know. It's... I couldn't I mean, jump out of a plane. I couldn't jump, do a bungee jump. I've done which that. Which is why I use those analogies. I don't know. <laughs> I've done that You've too. done that too. So maybe you could do it. All right. Tell yes. me how your experience goes. I will let you know. I mean, I kind of want, this is what's funny. I have no interest in like, you know, weed or like the party no, drugs or anything, but this stuff I am fascinated by. I think I would totally do it. Maybe I'll do it for my 30th birthday. I'm fascinated by getting a better sense of self. I totally believe in, you know. Yes. Yes. Get it, improving our ability to care for our mental health on all different levels, you know, breaking through, especially for people who have had stress, post-traumatic stress. I mean, there, is, there are a lot of suggestions that this can be super helpful ways for people to process. So I'm, I'm yes. hopeful. Absolutely. Same. I think let's not block ourselves from what we don't fully understand yet. And Michael is such an advocate for that. Yeah. Speaking of... We have lots and lots of questions for Michael about this and more. So let's hop into our community questions. All right. We have Patrick from Glasgow. My question is, if you could overnight change society's perception about any one drug, what would it be and how would you change it? Well, I sort of feel like I've been doing it or working on it with regard, especially to psilocybin. Totally. You have. Um, which, you know, a lot of people saw as kind of a fun party thing, take some magic mushrooms, take a walk in the woods, and trying to get across the idea that this is a powerful therapeutic agent, mm -hmm. spiritual agent, um, has been kind of part of what I've been doing. I, I guess one I would, be, I would be interested to work on is tobacco. Mm. Um, like most people, I share the sense that this is an evil weed, kills four to 500,000 people a year in the United States alone. Everything, it's disgusting. Mm -hmm. Everything about it is, you know, pretty awful. But it is also considered one of, if not the most powerful plant medicine in many New World indigenous mm -hmm. cultures. And I had the occasion to have a tobacco ceremony, which involves not smoking it, but kind of having this liquid shot up your into your sinuses that was incredibly powerful and interesting mm -hmm. and useful. It's very short-lived. And it made me realize that the, the Western way we chose to use this plant when we discovered it has, is, has been, um, uh, you know, just a tremendous yeah. mistake. And that in another context, it actually could be a healing plant. Uh, used in a ceremonial way, very rarely they don't smoke it every day or anything like that. And um, so, of all the drugs that need a second look, I would wow, say tobacco. Wow, that's a, you that is a very provocative response. It's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Wait, so what happened? I, I don't want to take up too much time, but what happened when they shot it up your your nostril? 
So I worked with this, I worked with this uh, medicine carrier, she calls herself, and she's got a syringe and she soaks this rustic tobacco from South America in water and makes this brown liquid and, you know, into each nostril. And it's just this sensation of fire racing from your, the front of your head to the back of your head and then down your back. And it, it just, and you start moving in an involuntary way. All your limbs are moving and you're shaking and it's cathartic. In a good though. way. You just feel these. Live? In a good way. These storms of emotion. Or after. Yeah. Okay. Coming out of you. During. No, during, okay. right after, immediately after. It only takes oh. like five minutes. And then you're kind of exhausted. And that's it. The only negative that I could see is if you swallow, you feel like you, which I did mm. inadvertently, you feel like you've eaten mm. an ah. ashtray. Yeah. yeah, hard to get rid of that. <laughs> and that, and that yeah. was very I nasty. See. Hi, Michael. I'm Corey from Scranton. I'm a big fan. I want to know what you think about this whole healthy meat alternative space, like no evil and impossible foods and all those. Are they actually better than just eating meat or is this all a marketing fad? So I don't know that they're better from a health point of view. You're talking about plant-based burgers. Meat, um, yeah, in general. They have similar amounts. Uh, they have similar amounts of saturated mm -hmm. fat and salt and all that stuff. So it's not, it's not a health food. They, they lack some things that conventional beef has, which is hormones, mm -hmm. for example, uh, that we use to uh, inject cattle in this country, not in other countries. Um, so in that sense, it might be marginally better for you. But that's not the reason to eat them. The reason to eat them is, to, is because you care about uh, the fate mm -hmm. of the animals or you care about the fate of the climate because, the, you know, meat eating, beef eating in particular puts huge amounts of Yep. greenhouse gas into the totally. atmosphere and this this if you're a burger eater this reduces your carbon footprint a veggie burger reduces it however still farther I so okay. i do eat i do eat these mm -hmm. burgers occasionally um you know uh, when i see them on a menu in a restaurant i'll i'll have it if there's no other kind of vegetarian mm -hmm. alternatives um, yeah and they're, they're good. good i mean yeah. they're i'm, I'm the food the food science yeah. is really impressive agreed um, but don't kid yourself. This, this is isn't not health even food. just because yeah. you see the words right. plant based, plant based, right? I mean, yeah, sugar yeah. is a plant, right? There's <laughs> lots of vegan. things we eat that are plants Doesn't that are not healthy. necessarily yes. healthy. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. We have David. Hi, Michael. What was your most meaningful experience on psychedelics? What did it mean? Um, the most meaningful experience is the one I described in How to Change Your Mind. It was a high dose psilocybin journey uh, with a guide and who was wonderful. Uh, and I uh, and I had it was it was I had an experience of ego dissolution mm -hmm. of, of looking out and seeing me, the person I thought of as me, explode in a cloud of blue mm. post-it notes and Whoa. which settled to the ground and created this puddle of of blue paint and that was me and i was beholding this site from some new perspective that that was completely untroubled by what what it saw and i still don't know what perspective that is uh where it came from but it it, it showed me that i was not identical mm -hmm. to my ego and that that i could separate and that i would survive the death of my ego and which was reassuring yeah, and it, and then it was a it was a beautiful experience. I mean, I felt very uh, f I just felt equable. Um, and, and then I had this sensation of merging with this piece of music that was being played, 
when you lose your sense of self, there's no subject-object distinction. So you're just one with whatever is going on. In this case, it was this Bach unaccompanied cello suite being played by Yo-Yo Ma. And it was, was your guide playing that for you? Yes, she was playing it, yeah. And I had asked her to play it. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were fighting about the music right before this. And she was putting on all this... All this new age crap, that, you know, would be fine for a, would be fine for a, a massage, but not for you know an inner journey. All right, next we have Lauren from Brooklyn. What's one thing that feels like a drug to you, but isn't a drug? Like for me, it's the smell of my newborn baby. Oh, that's so great. Well, that is a drug. She's having oxytocin release. She there's is. a there's a hormone that is released when you smell or hug your newborn baby, and that it. Uh, does change your mind and makes you feel very connected, um, very, you know, gushes of warm feeling toward the baby. And it's an evolutionary trick that the baby figured out (laughs) to get us to take care of them. It's a great spell. Yeah. So (laughs) So what's yours? So what's mine? I mean, you know, men can have oxytocin release too. Mm -hmm. Um, It happens during sex and other times. And, uh, and, and when you take MDMA, there's an oxytocin release. Um, but I think coffee is something that, uh, caffeine is something people don't think of as a drug. And it is a drug. It's a very profound and powerful drug. Um, it happens to change us in ways that, you know, that capitalism and our employers and lots of people, you know, think is just fine. But it does change us. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and it's just, it's just invisible to us because it's the water most of us, except for you, Ariel, swimming. <laughs> but I love you- matcha. I love matcha. Matcha. Okay, so you, I love tea. Oh, so you're getting caffeine. Yeah, I love you're tea. Getting caffeine. I love tea. Yeah. So yeah. I'm a, I'm a half liar. Uh, caffeine is a wonderful drug, and there there are very few downsides to it. But what about not even arguably a drug? Like, is yours gardening, or I know you love to bake? Oh, or... oh, oh! I think all sorts of. I think I mean sugar is a drug, right? I mean, yeah. sugar changes how you feel. Look at kids when they eat mm. sugar, and that is their that's their drug. They're and they're addicted. Many of them. Um, lots of foods have that because uh, they have powerful associations. We, we're just beginning to understand all the links between food and mood. Mm. Um, and uh, But there are a lot. Uh, so I think there are a lot. I think drawing a line around the category drug is not easy at all. That was such a unique conversation, not only yes. because Michael is a special and interesting guy, but usually with Bring a Friend, we're sort of chit-chatty and, you know, who? what friend would you, you know, have by your side in yes. one of these trips? We didn't even get to our lighter banter, silly questions because uh-uh. there was just so much that was provocative there i know his brain has so much to say and i'm just like wait keep teaching me i'm like should i go to harvard should i go to harvard and take his class <laughs> yeah i don't think that's possible or go to berkeley and be part of his that's more likely yeah i'll be a test i'll be one of the test ones you're a west coaster i'm a west coaster i could do it i could do that um but no fabulous i thought i, I have so many questions which is sort of how he starts his own process so i'm gonna I'm going to spend some time writing on them and see see what happens. You know, I think when if when you read his books and you see the level of depth that he probes yes. to get deeper and deeper and deeper into an issue, you know, it did remind me of his little underground varmint analogy 
of, you know, digging down in the hole and how do you figure out how to go deeper and deeper and definitely don't throw that gasoline and fire in. Oh my gosh, what a metaphor. Uh, That was a great, that was a great story. But, you know, it did, it did prompt me as someone who is interested in issues and tries to be a writer nowhere near at his level. But I love getting into the brain of how someone who is at the forefront of thinking Mm -hmm. thinks. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's just fascinating. So I am sure next week, um, we will be on a different level with a different person who both makes, you know, real people shine and lets people who shine get real. And Michael did both today. (laughs) Love that. Um, and it's not so different from the conversations that we have at Parlay House, yes, um, where we really talk about subjects that we're not able to talk about in the rest of our lives. I mean, do you go around with your friends and say, you know, let's talk about our next psilocybin trip? I mean, probably not. <laughs> so, but maybe you want to, or maybe you exactly. want to admit to someone that you tried it or you want to try it or find a guide or, you know, I mean, these are some of the conversations that we have, not exactly on this topic, but when we get together with other women at Parlay House or people on Bring a Friend um, to just sort of find a greater sense of belonging and community. So if you want to be part of that, keep joining us on the podcast. Check us out at parlayhouse.com, P-A-R-L-A-Y house.com. Uh, it's free to become a member. So, you know, just join and you can you can watch all of the past interviews we've been doing over the last few years um, online, just going through the website. Super fun to check it out. And your mind will be blown in ways that even <laughs> Michael Pollan doesn't know yet. <laughs> totally agree, friend. We'll see you all there. And please, when you come back, bring a friend. If it seems life is heavy, just pull up a seat. I've been looking for someone to me. I've got stories I can talk about. Bring a Friend was produced by us, Ann Devereaux Mills and Arielle Fuller, with a whole lot of help from our all-girls superstar team, Eliza Mills and Daisy Palacios. Our delightful music and theme song were created by the talented duo Exes, fronted by Ali McDonald. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.